0: By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter.
1: Welcome to the Quillette Podcast, I'm Jonathan Kay. The current COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted how susceptible our globally connected societies have become to new viruses. It also has brought attention to the strange nature of viruses themselves, a strange kind of entity that some scientists don't even consider to be a form of true life. That's because viruses can't create energy, or replicate themselves, or even move without infecting the programming of a host cell, such as the cell of a human. As we've seen with COVID-19 and many other deadly viruses, such infections can have devastating consequences for whole civilizations. In recent weeks, as I've been studying the science of virology for my regular Quillette COVID-19 science updates, I came across an especially interesting paper in the Journal of Virus Evolution by lead author Gemma L. Gigan, who is now a lecturer at the University of Otago in New Zealand. Professor Gigan's 2018 paper, called Hidden Diversity and Evolution of Viruses in Market Fish, focused on the incredible diversity of viruses that can be found in perfectly healthy fish that are caught and sold at stores around the world. And by analyzing the different viruses found in different fish, Professor Gigan has been able to study the way viruses jump from species to species. This has an obvious connection with the study of COVID-19, which is believed to have crossed over to humans from bats, possibly through another animal, such as pangolins. Professor Geegan's work is especially relevant to us because of her focus on the role of host ecology, whether the host is a fish, a human, a dog, a rabbit, or a horse. And by ecology, she means the way the hosts relate to one another and their environment, the way they live, mate, hunt, and socialize. Professor Gigan's 2018 paper on fish focused specifically on the differences between viruses contained within shoaling fish that school together, and more solitary fish, which practice the aquatic version of what we now might call social isolation. And given that most of us have gone from the human equivalent of shoaling fish to the human equivalent of solitary fish in the last few weeks... Her conclusions have profound implications for all the socially isolated people listening to this right now. Professor Gigan spoke to me by Skype on Monday from her home in New Zealand. Here are excerpts from that conversation. When we talk about viruses, there are some who say they're not life as we know it. What do they mean by that?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I guess it's a philosophical question, to be honest, um, and it has been debated. The, the reason why people dismiss viruses as a form of life, as the fourth domain of life, if you like, is because they're not capable of independent replication. So that means that they have to exist within a host cell and use the host cell machinery for replication and also their metabolic processes. So they're not independent in that sense. And so a lot of this argument for the fact that they can't live without a host is that because they're not alive.
1: When we say they can't live without a host, it means, for instance, they don't have mitochondria, they can't generate energy. Can they propel themselves? Do they have any aspect of animal
0: life? They don't. Basically, a virus is a nucleic acid. Which means that it has either a DNA or an RNA genome, and that might be double or single-stranded. So the way that the genome exists differs between different viruses, but it's essentially wrapped in a virus-encoded protein capsid. And this capsid sort of coats the nucleic acid, the DNA or RNA genome. And sometimes that is also coated with an outer envelope, which is a sort of lipid coat of the virus. And that's all a virus is really.
1: The way this is sometimes depicted, it's sort of like information wrapped in a protective ball.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's pretty accurate. The fact that a virus can't itself do anything without the architecture or machinery of a cell. They're not cells themselves. They invade a cell and use that architecture and machinery to, to enable itself to, to replicate. And, and then it can be moved to one cell to another.
1: Your work involves analyzing the different types of viruses that exist and how they evolved. You have studied this in fish, first of all, I didn't even know that fish got viruses, but why are fish an interesting population to study in terms of viruses? That's
0: a good question. I'm really interested in the host ecological traits that promote or inhibit viruses to diversify and evolve and ultimately jump host species boundaries to emerge in new populations. So that's my big interest. And I think that as a very species-rich group of vertebrates that exhibit a wide range of ecological traits, fish provide this ideal model system to study the impacts of host ecology and the consequences of, of what makes up their virome composition and the dual impact of host and virus ecology. The key to understanding why viruses evolve and diversify in the way they do to ultimately jump species boundaries is in the host ecological traits. And so I've been studying viruses in fish using next generation sequencing technology called metatranscriptomics. And this enables us to, to basically explore all the viruses that infect a host. And it's an unbiased way of sampling all the viruses in a host. So they provide this ideal model system to understand host ecology. But also we found by studying fish viruses that they harbour an astonishing diversity of viruses and seemingly more than any other class of vertebrate, which includes mammals and reptiles and birds. They've also got this indicative pattern of long-term virus host co-divergence which means they've evolved with their hosts dating back probably millions hundreds of millions of years when vertebrates first evolved from fish
1: you talked about the relationship between viruses and the ecological state of the host population could you describe what you mean by that what you mean by the term ecology in that context
0: so fish have a broad range of ecological hosts that may be important for how viruses emerge and and jump species boundaries and also just the evolution the mechanisms that drive the evolution of fish viruses. Um, so for example fish tend to live in either big densely shoaling fish species or quite solitary fish species they're also the most species rich, Vertebrate on Earth. So, the diversity between fish taxonomic orders, for example, there's more genetic diversity between those fish species than there are between some mammals and some fish species. So, there's placental fish species, for example, that that are more closely related to humans.
1: Are the principles of evolution as they apply to, say, plants and mammals, do they apply to viruses in the same way?
0: Oh, totally. Although Charles Darwin never talked about viruses because what we know about viruses at the moment wasn't really understood in Charles Darwin's time, for example. It's kind of a historical shame because it seems that Darwin would have held up viruses as some of the best examples of evolution by natural selection. And in the case of RNA viruses, for example, the evolutionary processes are so rapid that they can effectively be followed in real time by observers. So the mutation rate of RNA viruses in particular is so fast that you can see evolution taking place as you study viruses.
1: But they still have to align themselves in the way that they traditionally would infect a host. If they deviate too much, then they'll lose their ability to infect a new host. Is that correct?
0: Yes, exactly. They need to be constrained enough to be able to carry on their infection in that host. And so if they do deviate too much, then they're going to lose that ability. It might also give them a better ability to infect hosts or, or cause a different function in that infection. So there are upsides and downsides of having this high mutation rate.
1: When you're looking at the evolution of viruses and the evolution of hosts, and it sounds like there's a complex interplay between those two, how analogous is that to a biologist who's examining the parallel evolution of, uh, say, a parasite and a host creature or a symbiotic relationship.
0: Yes, it's very similar in terms of studying host virus relationships and host parasite relationships. There are a lot of examples where a host and a parasite or a host and a virus has evolved together and so you can study the evolution of of hosts and their parasites or hosts and viruses by reconciling the evolutionary history of of both of these life forms. So if you study the evolutionary history of the viruses and the evolutionary history of those hosts from which those viruses were isolated, you can reconstruct the evolutionary trees or it's like a family tree of of both of those viruses and the hosts. And the idea is if these evolutionary histories can reconcile, then you can see that there are patterns where hosts and viruses have co-evolve together and that's what we call co-divergence. Where at the moment when I'm studying fish viruses and fish are vertebrate life forms that probably evolved about 500 million years ago and all vertebrates that we see today have evolved from fish. And so what we're seeing then in the pattern of the evolutionary history of viruses, the viruses that we see in fish fall at these very deep branches in the evolutionary tree of viruses. And so, for example, you've probably heard about Ebola virus and other viruses that are related to Ebola virus like Marburg virus. And these viruses are found in humans and primates and bats. And we only thought that these viruses infected mammals. However, we found Ebola-like viruses in fish. And so, These are evolutionary related viruses, and we're not sure exactly how long ago they shared a common ancestor, but we can see that across many virus families, we can see this pattern where there are deep evolutionary histories of viruses in fish that were likely the ancestors of viruses that today infect a broad range of hosts, including mammals and birds and reptiles.
1: Are there examples of viruses that actually have benefits for the host? There are beneficial bacteria in our stomach, for instance. But I don't think I've ever heard of viruses discussed in that context. Am I missing anything?
0: There are some bacteria that have shown to be beneficial for the host. But I guess our knowledge of viruses and the complete virus fear, as it's termed, is really, really limited. And we've only just begun to understand the vast number of viruses that exist in the virus sphere. And our current knowledge is extremely limited to a proportion of viruses that either cause disease in humans and animals and plants that are probably economically important to us. And so we actually don't know the answer to that question because viruses haven't been studied in that way. And so it's important then to, to do the virological surveys of animals and other life forms to, to understand viruses in nature and viruses infect bacteria as well and they're actually the, the most abundant source of nucleic acid on earth. So the viruses that infect bacteria could actually be playing an important role in the microbiome of hosts as well. So the beneficial effects of bacteria, there could be an important role for viruses that play in that.
1: You mentioned that you're using this next generation technology that allows you to do surveillance testing of a fish population and look at a fish and look at all the viruses in that fish's body. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. It's It sounds like some of these fish that are being studied are getting more rigorous testing than, than some humids. Is there any kind of science fiction future ahead of us that a single machine or a single test will be able to determine all the viruses in our body, including viruses that are part of a pandemic?
0: One reason why humans aren't subjected to virological surveys in this sense is because humans don't tend to carry viruses that, that don't present themselves in disease a lot of the time. So they have an immune system which of rids themselves of a virus or it presents in some sort of way where the patient would would get sick, basically. And so the viruses that we know about in humans are usually recognised because of the way that the virus infects that host, whereas the viruses that infect fish tend to be in completely healthy fish. And I sampled fish from a fish market, which were sold for human consumption. These were just normal fish that you would eat and they harbored all of these viruses. They weren't causing any disease to that fish. They just have evolved with that fish and um, seemingly doesn't don't cause disease anymore. But the reason why it's important to study these viruses, even though they don't cause disease, is because they may be sources of novel diseases. So usually viruses which emerge in new populations have jumped from a reservoir population and these reservoir hosts often have viruses that don't actually cause disease in them but if they were to jump to a new host species then they may cause disease.
1: So that's really interesting about humans that we don't have any sort of baseline background viral population within us except to the extent it's what we would call disease but that fish do. If you look at other vertebrates, are they more like humans or are they more like fish in terms of their relationship with viruses?
0: That's a really good question. And we don't know the extent, the true extent of viral loads in different host populations. From what we have sampled so far, it seems that fish harbor an astonishing number of viruses. And the reason why we maybe theorize why they have so many viruses compared to other classes of vertebrates are because the evolutionary age of that host species. So fish date back to about 500 million years, where other vertebrates, mammals and so on, are much more recent. So viruses have co-evolved with these vertebrate hosts over these millions of years and have become part of that species viromes. So it's interesting that you brought up the fact that maybe humans should be subject to this technology to understand what viruses we're carrying. And we have actually argued for this way of surveillance to be able to preempt massive pandemics like we're seeing today. There are often jumps from wildlife to humans that cause disease and sometimes outbreaks like this. And so I guess we have argued for this sort of surveillance to happen on this interface of where humans interact with wildlife and and other animals, and so if you sort of concentrated the genomic surveillance on these areas where uh, viruses have known to be uh, to jump into human populations, such as in live animal markets or farming, intensive farming practices, and um, and so on, then you may be able to preempt. A pandemic like this
1: for a virus in a host animal in general there is no evolutionary benefit to rapidly killing that host because then it actually hurts the virus's ability to communicate itself to other animals is that correct
0: so viruses will always evolve to be transmissible um to be more transmissible the only goal of a virus is to infect a new cell and to replicate And that is both within a host and then be transmissible between hosts. And so that's the end game of the virus to be transmitted. And however a virus needs to get there, it will evolve to be able to do that. And that might involve a change in its virulence level. So if we say virulence, it means severity of the infection. So a highly virulent Virus, For example, Ebola virus was very virulent. It had a high mortality rate. Um, it killed a lot of its hosts. But a less virulent virus, such as influenza virus, the way that a virus has evolved to transmit between people, usually it can affect its virulence level. But it doesn't mean that virulence will always evolve to be avirulent or less severe just means that virulence is kind of a consequence of the evolution of a virus to be able to be more transmissible. So there's a good example in terms of the myxoma virus, which infects rabbits. And there's some evidence that the myxoma virus has evolved to become more virulent in rabbits. And the fact that myxoma virus can be spread by flies on dead rabbit carcasses to other rabbits means that there is no evolutionary pressure for that virus to become less virulent because it can still be transmitted on on dead animals. And so it's not so that there is selection pressure for the virulence, there's always selection pressure for transmissibility.
1: If human beings lived in a state where we didn't bury our dead, that would be a successful evolutionary strategy for a virus to kill its host quickly and then transmit through that method. From what we know about human behaviour and from the way humans act, a successful virus within a human population would be one that made you sick, but still did not prevent the host from communicating on an ongoing basis socially with other people and transmitting the virus, which I guess, if true, would provide an explanation for why most common viruses don't kill us.
0: Yeah, exactly. So if a virus made us too sick in terms of we would immediately be physically distancing ourselves from other human hosts, then that virus wouldn't be that successful. So the new coronavirus, which is currently circling the world, is extremely successful. And one of the main reasons is because there's seems to be many asymptomatic infections, as well coupled with the fact that people are contagious even before symptoms arise. So those two factors mean that people are spreading the virus to other hosts before they're getting sick or even sick at all.
1: You've used the term ecology several times In layperson's language, it's how humans relate to each other, how we live, how often we are in physical proximity, that that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, exactly. So a good example of ecology and why it's important for viruses to spread is um, at racehorse tracks. Racehorses and, and other horses have influenza virus, like many, many mammals do. And they first spread the virus to the dogs through the greyhound population at race tracks and then canine influenza virus spread to the domestic population of dogs. But dogs don't tend to live in populations. Usually an owner would have one or two dogs at home. Dog influenza virus, or canine influenza virus as it's called it, is a virus that has these hot spots only in dog shelters. But as soon as a dog leaves the shelter, it doesn't transmit to the population because they don't tend to live in dense populations like other animals do. So I guess that's a good example of the fact that the virus is genetically well adapted to spread between dogs and it came from a different host animal, horses in this case. But ecologically the host population it it's not well adapted for that virus to spread because of the population dynamics
1: so let's talk a little bit about species jumping because obviously that has ramifications for coronavirus or Mm COVID-19, bats and pangolins, if I'm pronouncing the name of the animal correctly. Those are the two animals that I've heard as perhaps being the source of this virus. Are both of those animals have what you have referred to as a reservoir viral population within them?
0: From the research that has gone on to date, it seems that bats are probably the reservoir host for a lot of these coronaviruses which have emerged in humans. Um, So for example, the first SARS coronavirus, which emerged in 2002, there was a bat virus in that. And it seemed that bats were the reservoir for that outbreak, as well as um, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS coronavirus, which jumped also from bats, but via camels. So It seems that bats are the reservoir host for many of these coronaviruses, but to get to humans, usually there's an intermediate host involved. And this is, I guess, where the possibility that pangolins might play a role, although it's not clear at the moment if they're the immediate intermediate host. So pangolins also have a coronavirus that's very similar to the one that's found in humans and in bats. And there's genetic signatures from both the bat virus and the pangolin virus that make up this novel coronavirus in humans. There have been reports that the coronavirus in pangolins actually cause disease. So that means that they're probably not a reservoir host for it, but actually the they've been subject to a host jump themselves, probably from bats.
1: The most frightening thing you've said during this interview is that viruses can mutate much more quickly than other forms of life or quasi-life. And I guess the historical example that comes to mind is what is sometimes described as the Spanish flu epidemic, although Spanish flu is not the right term. And as, as I understand it, because so many afflicted soldiers... With the flu, were put in the same rail cars. Just in the space of a, a few weeks or months, the flu mutated. If I'm getting that right, is that possible with COVID nineteen?
0: So there are many genetic changes that have occurred from the first appearance of this virus back in December, and from the the genomes that today that we we can um, derive from the virus, there's lots of genetic mutations that have occurred because. This is an RNA virus and it mutates very quickly. But what those mutations actually mean is not quite understood yet. If
1: I could ask a more personal question, you've studied viruses in fish and in other animals. You gave us a terrifying example of especially deadly bunny rabbit virus. In the last couple of months, your work has taken on obviously more urgency. Have you gotten more inquiries from, not just from the media, but but from colleagues and students looking for your expertise on this? Because this is a life or death issue we're talking about now.
0: Yes, definitely. This is a really busy time, I think, for all virologists. And both through science communication, I think that's really important to to communicate accurate information to the media, because in the world of fake news, you can see that this is a big issue. As well, though, the interest in virology itself and how viruses evolve and jump species boundaries, people are fascinated by that topic. And that's something that I've obviously been interested in for a long time and looking, basically dedicating my, my life's research to
1: are there books or films that have been helpful or particularly unhelpful in regard to the public's conception of how these species jumps takes place?
0: Um, One actually good movie that um, I would recommend is a film called Contagion. Because although it's, you know, it's Hollywood, so it's dramatized, it's actually pretty accurate in terms of the, the way that it does explain the epidemiology and and how viruses spread and and jump hosts. And the science advisor on that film is Professor Ian Lipkin from, from New York. So at least they used a well-known virologist to understand that.
1: We have lots of time to watch movies on Netflix. So film recommendation, Contagion. Thank you for your work and for taking the time to share your expertise with us at Quillette. We appreciate it. You're welcome.
0: Thanks for having me.